So uh, when Brian gave me a call and said, hey, we're looking for somebody to do kind of a slightly modern take or a modern report on the politics of the Bitterroot, oh, say from like 1960s forward, I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. How much time do you have? Ah, 20 or 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. Um, anyone who's seen me talk before knows that I, I, I get distracted very easily and tell stories. So hopefully uh, that won't happen that much today and, and I'll get through everything. Um, but really, when it comes to trying to talk about, you know, the kind of history of the Bitterroot and the history of the politics, um, you, you can't do 50 years in, in 30 minutes. So instead what I did is I, I tried to take kind of snapshots that we'll talk about um, of certain time periods uh, to kind of get an idea of what was going on. Um, so most of the groups that I'll talk about today are groups that I define as being on the hard right or I might also say right wing. So what does that mean? Um, these are groups that are really based around conspiracy theory. And most of those conspiracy theories revolve around how our current system has failed. Um, and not only has it failed, but it's really beyond saving. So where a lot of us you know, might look at public policy, um, certain politicians, and say, eh, I don't really agree with their vision for the country, and do things like uh, voter education, voter registration, use the process, most of these folks feel that really the system is beyond saving. Um, and part of what's happening as well is that the system has failed because of the them. Um, and the them can be lots of different groups of people depending on kind of which movement you're talking about, which group you're talking about. Um, it can be, in the case of the John Birch Society that we'll talk about, communists. Communists are everywhere. Communists are everywhere. They're ruining the country. Um, it can be international elites. It can be bankers. It can be intellectuals. Um, you can kind of substitute in uh, different, different keywords depending on the era, depending on the movement. And these people are using that system against us. Um, and really, you know, to persecute us, to take our rights away, um, in some cases to subjugate us to one world government, new world order, those types of things. The other piece to these groups, the, this construct I'm talking about is Often they, they offer really simple answers um, to really complex situations. Um, so one of my favorite examples is you look back at like the 1980s farm crisis where you have family farms going under all across the country. And when you look at the big reasons for that, you're talking about you know, international trade, you're talking about all of these different economic and financial issues that are coming together to create this perfect storm. A group like the Posse Comitatus at the time, they had a simple answer. They had a simple answer and they would come in and tell people, look, it's not your fault. It's the Jewish banker's fault. Um, and so you find time after time these examples of um, these groups offering very simple answers um, to really complex questions. And part of where those simple answers come from is these groups often believe that they have access to a higher truth. They know something that the rest of us don't know. Um, they understand things the rest of us don't understand. And part of that is also driven by this idea of um, dualism or duality, where um, I think a lot of us would agree, especially when you get into um, you know, what I would call the real world, when you get into public policy, when you get into areas like that, there's a lot of gray area. Well, for most of these groups, there is no such thing as gray area. You're good or you're bad. Um, 
you're black or you're white, but in some cases, like the white supremacist movement, literally, you're black or you're white. Um, but there is no gray area. And so this is really kind of the construct that these groups view the world in. So I did decide to start back in the 1960s and the 1970s. And before we talk specifically about the Bitterroot, let's, let's take a step back and put this into a national context. This is a time where you have these progressive social movements starting, organizing, pushing communities. So you've got the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the environmental movement. And what these groups are doing is they're really pushing back against the status quo. They're trying to redefine what had been very traditional um, American institutions, traditional roles around um, gender and families and, and how our government functions. Um, both internally, as far as in this country, but also when you think of the Vietnam War, um, how the country operates internationally as well. But one thing that history shows us repeatedly is that whenever there's these pushes for change, there's always pushback from the status quo. And during this time, you had really across you know the the political spectrum um, groups that were you know trying to slow change down or just outright stop it. So it's kind of in that context um, where we'll start with the Bitterroot. And in the Bitterroot, it's not surprising, um, at least it wasn't to me, that it tended to be these hard right groups that were the ones in the press that seemed to have the most um, kind of activity and presence on the ground. So one of the hard right groups during this era that had a really high profile was the John Birch Society. It was founded by this guy, uh, Robert Welch, in the late 1950s. And again, the group um, was all about trying to root out communists that they believed had infiltrated basically ever, every level of the government and communities and all of the power structures. Um, they even, to kind of show how they viewed things, they were an opponent of the civil rights movement um, and their view of it was that the communists had generated the civil rights movement as a way to sort of undermine communities and um, undermine the country. The group is um, probably, well, it's best known for, you know, kind of this, this red scare mentality, but, you know, it also did things like uh, circulate petitions to get Chief Justice Warren um, recalled from office because of various civil rights um, and church, church and state uh, separation rulings that the court was issuing around these times. And then it was really interesting, in one of the early articles um, that I found from uh, the Bitterroot uh, Daily Newspaper at the time mentioned this campaign around getting the U.S. out of the United Nations. Over time, that's still one of their big things today, but again, to show the change, where at this point it was the U.N. Um, is run by communists that's going to interfere with American sovereignty. Now, they talk about it being dominated by international elites, again, that are still trying to ruin the country. But um, this get the, getting the U.S. out of the U.N. is one of the ideas of theirs that has hung around. So by 1963, um, you start to see in the daily newspaper um, down here references to the Birch Society. Um, and, and frequently it was in letters to the editors where uh, you'd have both pro-Birch supporters and anti-Birch folks talking about what was going on in the community. Um, and again, one of the early letters I found in 1963, um, the letter writer was talking about supporting the impeachment of, of Justice Warren, 
Um, and some of the local press coverage um, talked about how local birch activists were interrupting Darby School Board meetings um, over the hiring and firing of personnel um, at that time. By 1964, there seems to be a little bit more structure forming, where it's not just individual activists in the community, but you start to be, see these formal groups starting, where you have um, a person who was considered the chairman or the coordinator of all of the Bitterroot Valley John Birch Society chapters. Um, and they start to have more formal events. So they would put on events featuring speakers um, that the local paper would talk about, you know, going like three or four hours, um, which, well, I probably would have found it interesting. I don't know how other people <laughs> sat through it. But um, you start to see a real, um, a real presence as far as formal structure goes. Um, and you start to see them bringing in speakers, um, both from other communities in Montana, but nationally as well. You also start to see these huge ads running uh, in, in the newspapers. So this is just part of an ad that ran in 1964 that really laid out um, the Birch Society's view of communists and how they were taking over the country. Um, this was a huge full-page ad, and, and fairly often, kind of in that 1964 era, you would find these huge advertisements running in the paper. Um, they generally didn't list kind of at the end like local contact information, though. It was normally how you could get in touch with the national office. As I mentioned, they started to have uh, these, oops, they started to have meetings, and these meetings got tons of press coverage. Um, for instance, this was, a, this was a picture in an article that ran on page one, um, January 20th, 1964. And again, the caption over here that I kind of cut off at the bottom, but uh, over on the right side there that I typed in, that was all included in the caption, and it starts to show this more formal structure um, they were adopting, where you have the Bitterroot, head of all their chapters on the left, you've got um, on the right, the state coordinator for the Birch Society, and then in the center, um, this Dr. Stanley Monteith, who um, was a guy from Santa Cruz that they brought in to speak. And what I found interesting about this picture, again, was the speaker that they brought in. So at the time, um, this guy was a very well-known Birch, Birch supporter and he kind of traveled around the country. Um, but the thing that I thought was interesting and, 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 um, and something that happens pretty regularly this was a guy that, that his influence long outlasted the Birch Society itself. He became um, very important to what would become the religious right during the 1980s. Uh, he had this um, national radio program that he ran for about two decades that talked about social issues of the time and often it was within this frame of um, be careful about you know the international elites and kind of that New World Order perspective. But, over time, and especially um, after he passed away, there were all of these people, these national leaders, among the conservative movement who talked about, oh, his radio show was really important, that the transcripts of that show would go out and circulated within the movement um, for years. So long after uh, the John Birch Society had really um, any influence at the national level, you see these individual activists, and this happens today, that kind of migrate. Um, and either join different movements or join different groups. And in, and in often cases, um, especially at the local level, it's these individual activists that in the long run turn out to be most important. So the height of the, 
um, influence of the John Birch Society here in the Bitterroot in the 60s was 1964. Um, and this was a, a quote that was um, in the paper. And interestingly enough, and, and I'll kind of um, contrast this with when we get to the 1990s, this really reflected what was going on at the national level. 1964, that 1963 to 1965 era, was really the height of the John Birch Society's influence profile um, at the national level as well, and that was mirrored very closely here in the Bitterroot. As I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the Birch Society got a lot of um, coverage during this time, but most of it was not positive. <laughs> um, the uh, opinion page, as I mentioned, was just full of both letters supporting um, the Birch Society and opponents. And um, George Danker, who was the owner and publisher of the Daily Valley Republican, would re routinely write these long, scathing editorials um, denouncing the John Birch Society and their presence in the community. What I found really interesting was another theme that he talked about a lot in those letters was telling Republicans to stay away. In other words, he constantly was saying, you know, the Republican Party needs to distance itself from the Birch Society, it should not get involved in the Birch Society. Um, and so along with critiquing the Birch Society, society itself, he clearly was, was worried about this, this dynamic that um, a lot of the Human Rights Network we talked about a lot, called Margins to the Mainstream. So how do these marginal groups get their ideology into the mainstream? Well, out on the right, a lot of times it comes through local Republican parties. Um, and uh, George Danker was very clear to his Republicans in the community, like, no, <laughs> just stay away. But he didn't just editorialize against the Birch Society. Um, he also brought in a national speaker um, that held um, a huge community event, and the national speaker spent about half of his presentation denouncing the John Birch Society. Um, so you had the Birch Society getting a ton of coverage, but frankly, not much of it um, was positive. I also don't want you to think somehow that this local paper would, had turned into some like left-wing rave. <laughs> Instead, I mean, the, the paper also would pretty routinely um, include articles, you know, that uh, were fairly critical of the various progressive movements at the time. This was part of a, I think it was a nine-piece um, insert that the paper ran that was basically a series of articles that mostly was critiquing like the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement um, at the time. Uh-oh. Did I do that? Oh. And it's back. Um, so again, uh, George Danker didn't just run this series of articles, he actually brought in the journalist um, who was the one that had written them uh, for a public meeting as well. Not only that, but that same speaker I mentioned that came in and, and denounced um, the John Birch Society as part of the hard right, spent the other half of his um, presentation warning the community about what he called the extreme left. So again, it's not necessarily that um, the paper was leaning to the left or anything like that. I think more what it's a reflection of is at that moment in time, as that national debate is playing out over the direction of our country, the local paper 
is reporting on what it's seen. And at that time, in the Bitterroot, on the ground, trying to move the debate and being really active, happened to be the John Birch Society. Also happened to be that the local publisher of the paper didn't like the Birch Society, so while they're covering the events, you know, on pages one and two, he's editorializing against the group um, on the viewpoint page. The other area I decided to look at around that same time um, was Barry Goldwater's presidential run around 1964. And the reason that I wanted to look at that time period as well is that the Goldwater campaign um, mobilized and what I call politically educated lots of activists. And a lot of the, the kind of new right into the 1980s, people in the religious right, people that were starting um, think tanks, they trace their political education and their desire to get involved back to being part of Barry Goldwater's campaign. The other reason it's interesting in this context is the John Birch Society nationally was very supportive of the Goldwater presidential campaign. Um, and in fact, Goldwater at, at points was forced to denounce the Klan um, and some other hard right groups, but he always refused to denounce the John Birch Society. Um, so, not surprisingly, given the level of activity um, by the John Birch Society in the Bitterroot, there were also a lot of groups um, and a lot of support for Barry Goldwater um, here locally. And what was interesting is, you know, you, you look through the papers, and it's not just like one group that shows up that's like, hey, we think Barry, Barry Goldwater is great. You get these various groups that start. You got the Citizens for Goldwater, Housewives for Goldwater, Senior Citizens for Goldwater, um, and there's news coverage of all of these groups having their own events, distributing literature, being really active in the community. Now, with the limited research I could do, I couldn't find direct connections between John Birch Society activists and Goldwater supporters in the Bitterroot. Um, I think I probably could, but there were a couple of items I found. Um, pretty interesting. The first one is this headline down at the bottom where um, the local leader of the Bitterroot chapters of the John Birch Society, he and his wife wait until the last minute um, before the deadline to file to get on the local Republican Central Committee. Um, and so there was this huge, you know, uproar over them being on the Central Committee. And again, it goes back to this idea of margins to the mainstream. Um, I don't feel like I'm going too far out on a limb given the time period. Um, the part of their interest in joining was one, to try to get um, a little bit of cred credibility within the local Republican Party, um, but also potentially to help Goldwater's campaign. The other thing that kind of follows the same lines is uh, Ravalli County had its own chapter of Young Americans for Freedom, which uh, was a group, um, a conservative group that was uh, generally form to try to recruit and mobilize um, younger people, mostly college-aged um, kids. And during the Goldwater election, um, the group was very supportive of Goldwater's campaign. And like I said, Ravalli County had its own chapter. Um, the leader of that chapter would um, write in, they were kind of like letters to the editor, they were kind of like really short news articles about these national events that he would go to. and. Um, all of these articles were very uh, pro Barry Goldwater. What I found interesting in this article is, so this was the secretary um, of the national group uh, that came in and had an event here. During the question and answer period, somebody in the audience asked, is there any 
um, correlation, any relationship between the John Birch Society and Young Americans for Freedom. I'm thinking that part of the, the impetus for this question was that person is sitting there going, wow, we've got a lot of John Birch activity here. We've got a lot of Barry Goldwater activity. I have no doubt that there were individuals that were both Birch supporters and Goldwater supporters, but clearly this was an issue that people were thinking about at that time. Um, now, her answer to the question is up there, and I think it's really interesting. She said her father, a member of the John Birch Council, had no connections with the Young Americans for Freedom, nor did she have any connection with the John Birch Society. Um, the thing that I find interesting about this, again, this goes back to how I talked about, you know, individuals. We move around. You know, in my bio, I'm on three or four different boards. You know, it's like we don't, and we take our ideas, our beliefs with us when we join other groups. What I thought was really interesting about this particular case is, um, you know, she says her father was part of the John Birch Council. He was actually one of the founding members of the board of the John Birch Society. In the article, she talks about how she had met tons of people from the Birch Society at her parents' house. Um, also, her father ran um, a broadcast called the Mannion Forum for 20 years. And again, very similar to what I mentioned earlier, the transcripts of that show and the messages from those shows circulated very widely within the overall conservative movement. So while I didn't find direct connections, you know, I kept hoping I was going to find like a picture of the local Bitterroot um, John Birch Society coordinator, um, you know, holding up a very gold water sign. I mean, every once in a while you get lucky, you know, you, you find something like that. I didn't find that, but just an understanding how um, individuals move within different groups and movements at the local level, I feel pretty good saying there was probably some crossover. So in the 1960s and 1970s, ooh, I am talking too long. Um, you see this time period where the, the hard right in the Bitterroot mirrors what's happening at the national level. Um, and you see a lot of coverage of it in the paper because, frankly, that's what was active on the ground in the community. And the interesting piece about the John Birch Society is, nationally, it would really lose favor in the conservative movement by the end of the 1960s. It would hang around as an organization, but you see it pop up over and over and over and over um, in the Bitterroot over the years. So I'll go through, I'll try to go through this pretty quickly. I don't see this. Okay. Um, so the 1960s and 70s, you see this reflection of what's happening nationally. As you get into the 1990s and 2000s, something different happens. Instead of reflecting what's happening nationally, oftentimes when it comes to the hard right, the bitter root is ahead of the curve. In other words, if you looked at the bitter root, closely and followed what was happening, you could predict what was going to happen nationally. The other thing is, back during the John Birch Society days of the 1960s and 1970s, there were clearly opposing opinions in the community. Um, but they played out like a very spirited debate. By the 1990s and the 2000s, the hard right takes on this undertone of threats and violence and intimidation um, as political tools. And the perfect example of that is the militia movement. Now, some of you in the crowd I know are intimately familiar with, with Cal Greenup here in the Bitterroot. And if the militia movement is a great example of how during this time period, uh, you know, the Bitterroot was almost a precursor to what would happen nationally, the poster boy for this would be Calvin Greenup. So as you can read through here, 
Starting in about 1993, he and 19 other people filed, well, they, they wrote a, um, a notice that was run in the local paper declaring themselves basically sovereign citizens, or like the Montana Freemans. So these are people that believe that your rights come from God and the government has tricked us um, into accepting a lower form of citizenship. And that's why these people don't want to have any contracts with the government. They don't want to have a social security number, a driver's license, any kind of a license. So he and these other 19 people declared we're sovereign citizens, essentially um, you don't have jurisdiction over us. January 1995, he and this national group, um, the North American Militia, um, send a letter to a local judge and local criminal justice employees basically saying, quit bothering Calvin Greenup. Um, if you don't do it, how many of your people do you want to end up in body bags? A little bit later, in 1995, uh, Cal Greenup calls out uh, about 15, well, about 20 members of his local militia group after um, an Idaho National Guard helicopter flies over his property. Um, he, again, is sure it's going to be an attack by the United Nations. Calls out the militia. They're ready to shoot it down should the helicopter come back. Again, a little bit later in 1995, there's this armed confrontation when one of his fellow sovereigns who refuses to have a driver's license, um, is a, a local law enforcement officer tries to pull her over. She won't pull over until she gets home. By the time she gets back to her home, there's a group of armed men there um, who engage in a standoff with law enforcement. About this time nationally, people were still saying, what's up with this whole militia thing? Um, and is there really the possibility for violence? Um, a lot of people looked at them as having some kooky ideas. You know, they were just really, um, really into the Second Amendment. They were misguided students of history, um, whatever. At that time, the Human Rights Network had been following what was going on in the Bitterroot Valley and in other places, and we issued a, it issued a report in 1994 um, saying, yeah, <laughs> we should be concerned about what's going on. And part of that was because, again, we were watching what was happening in the Bitterroot Valley. This kind of argument over whether or not the militia movement was capable of violence, the, the national media at the national level didn't really figure out its answer until uh, April 19th, 1995, um, with the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, I'm going to skip over over that um, and just end with some brief remarks about tea parties. Um, so again, you get into that like 2008 time period, and tea parties start popping up all over the country. And people at the national scene are looking around, trying to figure out, are, are these new? Um, what's going on here? And really, the reality is they were new, but they weren't original. And what I mean is, yeah, they were bringing um, in some new recruits. They were politically educating um, folks. But their basic ideology was just rehashed, recycled, long-time, hard-rate theories. Um, and to talk about the Bitterroot, I just wanted to mention what I call the lifespan of tea parties. There were basically three ways that tea parties started and continued. One was they started, and tea initially stood for taxed enough already. So these groups, some of the groups started with a very clear financial focus. They talked about tax policy, they talked about budgets, they talked about national deficits, financial issues. Groups that stayed on that hung around for a while and then died. You had a second kind of category of groups that started on that, 
And eventually, those other people that were joining brought other issues to the table. And so you started to see Tea Parties talking about guns. You started seeing them talk about um, you know, the New World Order. You started to see them adopt a broader agenda. Those groups tended to hang around longer. And then, as you had in the Bitterroot, there was, there was a third thing that happened, where you had all of this energy, all of these people um, being energized and recruited and, and politically educated. But in some cases, it wasn't a group that had Tea Party in its name um, that was the winner of that. Here in the Bitterroot, there were groups that actually had Tea Party in their name. I think one of, one of the main ones was like the Ravalli County um, Tea Party Patriots or something like that. But the real winner down here was a group called Celebrating Conservatism. And again, that helping people in Montana understand that Tea Party dynamic nationally, um, Celebrating Conservatism was a great example because nothing that they did was new. Um, they had huge meetings down here out at the fairgrounds. Sometimes they'd have three, four, five hundred people. But what they were preaching was basically the same recycled stuff from the 1990s militia movement. And you could see it in the speakers that they brought in. So again, John Birch Society, by this time a lot of people were like, hey, I didn't even know those guys were around anymore. Um, but they you know, would frequently bring in speakers with the Birch Society and in some cases organized meetings with who at that point was the, the, the guy who was the state leader of the Birch Society. Um, over on the right, you have this guy, Red Beckman, um, who was a notorious tax protester um, down in Billings, was kind of one of the, the um, early architects, at least, of the theories behind the militia movement. Um, he would come down and, uh, and give presentations. And then you have Richard Mack, um, this former sheriff who was a hero to the militia movement for standing up to the Brady Bill. Um, who was a huge proponent of um, something called county supremacy, which is this idea the county sheriff is the highest legitimate law officer, and really the county sheriff should be protecting us from the feds, um, which is an idea that pops up again and again. So, no, oh geez, I'm sorry. And finally, to re concluding remarks. Um, when I went back and did this, so for 13 years, I, I lived studying these movements, um, and this is by far the nicest crowd I've ever addressed in Hamilton. Um, I have done many community meetings here where the back is lined with guys that in the middle of summer refuse to take off their big jackets. Um, but, so as I was going through it, it reminded me of that wonderful historian um, and Yankee, Yankee great Yogi Bear. It's like deja vu all over again. Um, you see these same patterns over and over and over. In the Bitterroot, there's been this consistent presence of hard right groups over the years. The John Birch Society, and this was something that I, I wondered going into doing some of this research, I was like, I bet I'm gonna find references to them clearly in the 60s, I bet they're gonna show up down there in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and then the 2000s, and it's true. Um, and it's not like this is the only place that they show up, but it is pretty interesting to me um, that they appear to be a group um, that when they're thinking like, oh, where can we get traction, the Bitterroot is one of the places that they think about. And finally, civic involvement matters. One of the things that's depressing to me is I would come in and do these educational programs, um, and it can be really frustrating because you can read in the papers, and, and so often what you see in the paper is the loudest, the angriest, the meanest people drive what's considered the public dialogue. They're, they're catchy, they get quotes, they get press coverage. 
what I think is important to um, remember all the way back to the 1960s forward is yes, there's been that presence here in the Bitterroot, but you want to know what? They're not the only ones in the community. And you see back, whether it was the publisher of the daily paper going after the Birch Society in the 60s, whether it's um, this local affiliate group of the Human Rights Network called the Bitterroot Human, Human Rights Alliance for about 20 years, and just individual people in general, these folks have had a presence in the Bitterroot. And unfortunately, to a certain degree, to the outside world, I think, have defined the Bitterroot. But you want to know what they don't represent the majority of the people in the Bitterroot. And that's why it's so important to get up and be active in your community so those loud, angry voices aren't the ones that get to define what your community is. And with that, I'm over time. I'm sorry. Thank you very much.